your people. We plead with you, Lord. I wonder if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to the book of Hebrews and chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read from verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, what a wonderful passage I've just read to you, one that no doubt I'm sure you know quite well and perhaps could even recite without the scriptures in front of you. But what I wanted to do for us to get a greater understanding of this particular text, I just want to give a little bit of background to the book so that we understand the context of what we're speaking about here in Hebrews chapter 12. This letter was written by somebody, we don't know who the author was, but somebody wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to Jewish believers that were coming under persecution for their faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. They lived at a time when there was um, increased opposition, as it were, to this newfound faith, as some would have called it. And uh, as a result of this opposition, these Jewish people were tempted to, to take a way out that was accessible to them, which wasn't to Gentile believers. What was that? Well, Jewish believers could easily go back into Judaism. They had the possibility of going back to their old way, to their old religion. Because if they went back into the synagogues, they might be able to still uh, say that they were worshipping the same God. And therefore, it was a possible way out. You see... At this time, the synagogues were still, as it were, licensed. You could still be in a synagogue and you wouldn't be persecuted for being part of the Jewish community into Judaism. You would be persecuted as a Jewish person if you were living uh, as a Christian or at least as somebody who was um, found the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. So they are tempted to go back into uh, to the old way, to the old system. But if they did that, they would have to deny into the, in the synagogues that Jesus was the Messiah. It was, as it were, their children were, it's like they were getting beaten up at school, they would have bricks thrown at them perhaps through the window. That kind of level of persecution was about them in those days. Now, the writer does say that you have not resisted yet to blood, 
and they had, there was none of them who had yet become martyrs for their faith. But it is true to say they were starting to experience a measure of, of hostility that was tempting them back into Judaism. And that's really why the emphasis of the book of Hebrews is to bring Christ Jesus right to the fore and to say, Jesus is better. Don't go back to your old ways. I think it's even significant for us that the writer to the book of Hebrews isn't even mentioned. It's as though man is completely out of view here and the whole focus that the Holy Spirit is giving through the writer is to focus upon the Lord Jesus. So right through chapter 1 you find Jesus compared with the angels and you realize Jesus is better. Jesus is compared with Moses in chapter 3. Jesus is better. It's always the focus on seeing the importance of following the Lord Jesus. That's the main burden of the writer throughout the book. And if you look at it in that context, you get an understanding of his burden. And then you get to chapter 12. Now, it's a bit of a shame that we have this chapter division here. Um, You know the actual word, chapter, and the number 12 wasn't in your original Greek New Testament, right? It's one letter, and uh, I haven't found myself too often writing a letter and putting chapter 2 and 3 in it. Uh, I don't suppose you have either. Um, but they put it this way so that we can actually easily look up texts and verses of the Bible, so it makes it easier for us in that sense, which is helpful. But nonetheless, the letter of itself runs through chapter 11 into ver- chapter 12. So when he's saying, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. He's referring to what he's already spoken of before. And the great cloud of witnesses he mentions in chapter 11 are these men and women of faith. We realize, we see their names, don't we? Verse 4 of chapter 11, by faith, Abel. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch. Verse 7, by faith, Noah. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, and so forth. The list is um, quite long. If you go through chapter 11, you've got 40 verses there. Um, And, uh, you know, there wasn't really time for him to to be able to mention all of those in detail. But the fact remains that the list is there. And uh, in chapter 12, we go on to read that these people were called witnesses, a cloud of witnesses, those in a sense that have gone before us, those that are examples to us of what it means to live by faith. And so if you want to have an understanding of what faith is, don't simply look to Hebrews 11 chapter 1, sorry, Hebrews 11 verse 1, That's an important verse. It does give definition to faith. But if you go through Hebrews 11, you get to understand how faith works uh, in the life of the believer. And, you know, so many people have got a misconception of what living faith is. You know, people talk about, I'm going to take risks for Jesus. And everybody thinks they've got a lot of faith being able to take risks for Jesus and go here and go there and... uh, I'm going to be a missionary in Japan or something like that. Um, I'm just going to go out there because I want to take a risk for Jesus. I believe in having faith. That is not living faith, friends. 
that can be little more than presumption on our part concerning what God wants us to do. What essentially is faith? Faith essentially is responding to the revealed will of God. That's what faith is. You see, you can't simply pump faith up. Because in Romans 10, Paul says that faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So faith comes when I hear the word of God being preached or the Lord brings his word to me. And with the bringing of that word, there's a quickening of faith with that verse to do what the Lord applies that verse to in relation to my life. And so we need that kind of um, listening to be able to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. Faith and obedience work hand in hand together. It's so important for us to realize that. Take, for example, Hebrews 11 and verse 8. We read, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing where he went. He didn't even know where he was going. But the only reason he went out was because he was called. And so he went out and obeyed the calling. How? By faith. Do you see? So faith is the means through which we obey the Lord. And it's interesting that in Hebrews 11 verse 6, the scriptures say that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible. For he who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So how do you come to God? How's your faith doing? Well, I want to encourage you. Faith is something that is a gift. It's not something you can work up of yourself. And therefore, we need to look to the Lord for faith. And also, we can realize that if he's the one who's supplying us with it, he's the one who will sustain us with it. Do you see what I mean? We're not to put our faith in faith. That's the wrong understanding in the prosperity movement and in the um, new apostolic reformation, all these kind of modern ways of looking at things, just name it and claim it. That's not what the Bible says. To walk by faith is to walk in obedience to what God has spoken to you. Respond to it. And as you respond to it, that's walking with the Lord by faith. Well, we need to look to him as well to increase our faith, don't we? We don't just want to stay where we're at. We want to go on in faith, and the Lord can enable us to do so. Well, going back to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, so we've looked at this cloud of witnesses, those that are mentioned in verse 11, and the writer is saying, seeing we have these men and women that have lived by faith, that have run the race and got to the tape line, we need... To do the same is basically what he's saying. And he's saying, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Now notice that there is a distinction made between weights and sins. Yeah? It's not necessarily saying that having a weight on you that you shouldn't have is a sin in and of itself. It puts it into a different category. But what the writer is saying is that if you're going to run this race of faith, you need to make sure, if you're going to run with endurance, that is, that you lay aside every weight. 
And a weight from the uh, Greek denotes a bulk or mass, hence metaphorically an encumbrance, a weight, something that weighs you down, that slows you down. Remember, the picture in the book of Hebrews 12 is one of a race, isn't it? And the race that we're to run is not a sprint 100 meters. It's an endurance matter. It's a long-distance run. It's a marathon, the Christian life. And therefore, if you're going to run a marathon and you've got excess weight on you, that's going to make it difficult to get to the end, isn't it? It's going to slow you down, certainly. And you need to get rid of those things in your lives that are weights, that really weigh you down. You know... There are a number of things in our lives, friends, that slow us down, aren't there, in our walk with the Lord, and we hold on to them. You know, it can be a relationship. We know it's not quite what the Lord intends for us, but we're holding on to it. It's slowing us down. It can be something of the past, the way we were brought up. Perhaps we knew a measure of fear in, in our past as children. And so we find that things like superstitious things and practices like this can easily creep into our Christian faith. It will slow us down. We need to be done with a lot of it. Anything that's going to hinder you moving on with the Lord needs to be laid aside. It actually means to cast it off. That's what the word means to um, lay aside. It means to throw the thing off. How are you going to win? You see, the whole purpose of this race is to win it. It's not that you're running in competition with other believers as such, but you need to run the, the, the race as to win it. Now, think about how athletes train for a minute. Wouldn't you agree with me that athletes deprive themselves of certain privileges that we, as all people who aren't athletes, participate in without any problem? Isn't that true? There's certain things that they'll abstain from that will hinder them being able to run that race as so to win it. And friends, they run for a race to gain a perishable crown, something that's not going to go into eternity. You're running a race to gain a crown that will be forever, that is of eternal value. And so therefore, does it not behove us all to seek to ask the Lord at least, Lord, what am I weighed down by? What things are slowing me up in my walk with you? Show me that I might be able to run that race with endurance. You see, if the enemy can't stop you on the race. He'll try to slow you down, won't he? He'll try to distract you with things that appear to be necessary. But only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen that good part. Do you remember what Jesus said to Mary? And there's Martha rushing around trying to make everything ready, fearing that she's going to burn the toast. And so many of us are there trying to rush around for Jesus. Oh dear, when will we stop? It's difficult living in London, isn't it? Everything goes at 190 miles an hour, doesn't it? Everything is quick. Isn't you find you get into the countryside and suddenly you feel, ah, oh, I can relax. I'm out of London. I'm out of Mottingham, the centre of London. And, um, and, you know, and you just feel that you need to get away. 
from just the pace of things. And so many of us as Christians, we're working for the Lord, doing this, that, and the other. And if we're not, we're feeling agitated that we should be doing this, that, and the other. But so often, dear friends, our agitation is due to the fact that underneath there's not a settledness in our hearts over the fact that Jesus has done everything for us. And we enter into a rest. And then the work that we do is the result of the work that the Lord does in us. Remember what it says in Ephesians 2 verse 8. You have been saved by grace. That means God's unmerited favor. Through faith. And remember we've said faith is a gift from God. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Have you ever seen clay on a potter's wheel getting anxious over the fact that the potter isn't doing enough for it? You imagine the clay, I just, oh, maybe I've got to do something for the potter to make the potter make me something. The Lord is the master craftsman. He knows how to make you, and he knows the work he has for you, and he knows what he wants of you. Well, you say, well, what do I need to do then? And the answer's quite Obvious in one sense. Sometimes we need to stop. I was speaking to somebody after the service who was telling me that on the way to the camp, they missed the turning or something. No, the satnav told them to do a left, so they did a left. And they went round, and the satnav seemed to take them back to the same point where this farm was. So they went on again and they went round and the satnav took them back to the place where they stopped off at this farm again. And in the end, they asked the farm, the people on the farm, where do I go to get on the right road? And they said, no, you need to not take that first left, you need to take the second left. <laughs> that would be me. Um, but anyway, this, this dear sister, she said, I oh, realised, you know, sometimes you just need to stop to get yourself in the right direction. And that's true for every one of us. You see, we can just be going round in circles. And the enemy's quite happy with that if he can't get us really in tune with the Lord. We've got to lay aside every, every, every weight. Now, that's not a biblical suggestion. That's a command in the word of God. And friends, you may find it difficult to extract yourself from certain practices due to habit and form. But have faith in God. If he puts his finger on something, just say, right, I need to let that drop. You may say, but what will so-and-so think? Let it drop. Yes, I know it's affecting my walk with the Lord, but this person will totally misunderstand. Let it drop. but I'm not being nice. Let it drop. If I asked you this morning, 
Sorry, this afternoon, isn't it? It was this morning earlier, and I was in the same place. So um, uh, forgive me getting my words mixed up. It doesn't take me a lot to get muddled. If I ask you this afternoon, in four words, to answer me this question, why did Jesus come to earth? I wonder what you would say. It wouldn't take us long to get round. Now, I know some of you are getting a little anxious now. And you think, oh, no, he's not going to do that, is he? Don't worry, I'm not going to do that because preachers do things like that. And I've been in the congregation where I've heard preachers say things and I've thought, what's he going to say next? But I'm going to say something totally biblical to you. But why did Jesus come? You might say, to save us all because we were heading towards hell. Well, that's true, but that's not what I'm thinking about. Why did Jesus come? Because he loved us. Well, that's true. It says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, doesn't it? That's true. Why does, what does Jesus say, as it were? Why did he come? I'll tell you what it says about why Jesus came. In the scriptures it says this, Behold, it is written of me, I have come to do your will. That's why Jesus came. You see, there's things that went on in Jesus' life on the earth that you can't comprehend. Why were there some people he just walked past? Why were there some people he didn't do things for? Why did he do things for this person? And perhaps not for that person. Why is it, for example, when the disciples were excited that there were some Greeks that wanted to come and see Jesus, Jesus didn't say, yes, bring them along and I'll save them. Why didn't he do that? Do we ever think about this? You know when you read the Bible, think about these questions. Think, think, think. Use your brain. When you're engaged, you're all very knowledgeable people that I'm talking to this morning, aren't you? Degrees and whatnots and everything like that. But, you know, use your brain. Allow the Spirit of God to give revelation as you're using your mind. These Disciples come along. Jesus, there's some Greeks who want to see you. And Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. You're what? What about them? Why? Behold, it is written of me. You see, Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. Now, as we go on in this passage in Hebrews 12, we will find that Jesus is the exemplifier for us of a person who lived by faith. The Lord doesn't want us so much to work for him. He's looking for those who he can work through. 
Okay. You and I need to lay aside every weight. Sometimes weights can be people. Now, I, I'm not asking you to the next person who asks you to do something to tell them to get on their bike. Okay, I'm not, that is not the message that I'm bringing you this afternoon. The scriptures tell us we, we are to, in a sense, um, carry each other's burdens. There is a general sense in which we need to help one another. But what happens if somebody takes advantage of that and is constantly drawing you away from what God is intending for you to do? Where are you going to go on that? When somebody draws you away from the race that you're running, it will wear you down. When it's something that isn't of God, it will draw you down. It will sap you of life and strength in the end. Paul had a heavier load than any of us are going to have. But he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I labor more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So it's the grace that you need. The grace will be given for the work that God has called you to do. But you won't find God's grace coming your way for works that he hasn't called you to do. And the problem is if we take on extra weight and things that God hasn't commanded us to do, our race is going to get a little slower. We need to go at God's pace, don't we? And we need to lay aside every weight. Okay, I think I've labored that point enough. What about these Jewish believers? What was their weight? Essentially, I think we can safely say that something of that weight, as it were, would be to go back under the law. The danger for the Jewish people here is to go back into Judaism and go back to the types and shadows rather than staying with the reality of the person of Jesus himself. And so they needed to avoid that. And all of us need to avoid these traps, the extra weights, extra things on top of what the Lord commands of us. Think about the book of Galatians. What were the extra weights there? Legalism. Legalism. This is what they're tempted by here in Hebrews as well. These Jewish believers are tempted by legalism. Got to be under the law. And in Galatians 5 verse 7, Paul says to them, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see, when we stop obeying the truth and we start obeying what other people want us to do, rather than the Lord being our focus, it can hinder our running. And in Galatia, they were being hindered by legalism. They're coming back under the law. We live in a society today where we can be tempted to go back to our old ways of licentious living and loose living. We're very much in that decadent society that we're in today, aren't we, where anything goes. And when people become Christians, they have to give up their old ways of life. And they're tempted by loose living. Well, there can be a danger of going back to wrong ways there. Well, that can be getting more into the sin department than the weight. But nonetheless, it will hinder our running well. May the Lord help us to run well. So we go on to read in this passage. And the sin which so easily beset us. What is that sin that so easily besets us? We all have temptation to certain sins. We're weaker in different areas from one another. But essentially, I would say it would be unbelief. Because this is all in the context of living faith. 
And so the sin that can so easily beset us often is unbelief. We do not believe God. And we need to ask the Lord to deal with that unbelieving heart. May the Lord spare us from having an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the Lord. May the Lord save us from that. And then we go on to read this phrase. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. Now the word looking here, according to Vine's concordance, means to look away from one thing so as to see another. Isn't that wonderful? That that's what the Greek is really meaning here. To look away from one thing so as to see another. And it speaks of considering things attentively. Marvellous. Where are you looking in these days, friends? Are you looking about you anxiously? Are you looking to other men for help? There's nothing wrong with having help from others, but I want to ask you, are you looking unto Jesus? Is the Lord Jesus the focus of your life? If you're looking unto him, you will be able to run this race with endurance. But if you take your eyes off Jesus and look elsewhere, you will find the race begin to be a struggle. So many of us look inwardly, we just get introspective and it's constantly looking into ourselves and become depressed. Well, it's hardly surprising, is it? We become anxious and depressed about things. Well, you know, we're not meant to be looking inward. We're meant to be looking upward. We're meant to be looking to the Lord, aren't we? Away from ourselves. I made a silly illustration this morning, but I'll repeat it again. I'll use Dennis for my example this time. Dennis, my brother here, took the um, bus, the minibus, to camp this year on behalf of the church. So let's just imagine now that Dennis is on his way to camp. And uh, as he's driving along, everything's fine and wonderful, but he suddenly thinks... I need to really pay attention to my driving. I really need to focus in on it. So what he does, instead of looking at the road ahead, he starts looking at where his hands are on the steering wheel, just making sure they're in the right place. And then he thinks, well, as I change gears, I'm going to look at how well I'm doing this. So I look at myself and I put my foot on the clutch and I'm putting my hand on the gearbox and I'm changing gears and yes that was a good change and then into fourth oh dear no I should have been in third not that Dennis would get that wrong I'm sure he's a very good driver and making sure my foot's on the acceleration Audrey I heard you laughing his foot's on the acceleration <laughs> and he's going along and he's speeding along fine but something's going to happen he's going to crash isn't he because his eyes are on what he's doing rather than on the road that's ahead of him. It's the same thing can happen with our Christian life. If you're always looking into yourself and focusing in on yourself, you're going to end up spiritually crashing, okay? The way to live the Christian life is to look unto Jesus. Let the Lord himself be your focus all the day. All the day. Why? Because he doesn't change. He's just consistently who he is. My feelings change. I'm up and down at times 
in where I'm at spiritually. Sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes I'm more alert. Other times I feel nothing. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed with experience. I'm like that, but Jesus doesn't change. I need to keep my eyes on him. If your eyes get focused on yourself rather than on the Lord, you will lose sight. You won't be able to run with endurance. You know, Paul the Apostle said, no good thing dwells in me. (laughs) If you're looking for what's in your heart, I can tell you before you look, I'll save you a lot of time if you like. It's not a pretty sight because you've got a similar one to mine, I'm afraid. And the heart is sinful. It's desperately wicked. The best thing we can do with our hearts is ask God to shine his light on them. You see, if I try to discern the condition of my own heart by means of my own reasoning, my own reasoning might be faulty. I need the word of God to penetrate my understanding. Otherwise, I won't see sin as seriously as God sees it. Or I won't believe I can be forgiven by God due to the depths of my sin because I don't know the enormity of his grace. Either way, I can find myself in a bad position. Focus your eyes looking unto Jesus. And it's a wonderful thing when you look unto him. You begin to walk on the water, won't you? Do you remember Peter in that storm? Bless his soul. We always have a go at Peter, don't we? But I notice that he's the only one who had the courage to get out of the boat. Anyway, he got out of the boat went further than a lot of us would, starts walking on the water, and while his eyes are on the Lord, the storm doesn't have control over him, even though he's in it. And that's the truth for your life and for mine. We, we often think, if only the Lord would take this storm away, I'd be able to walk with him. But that's not the way the Lord wants us to learn. He wants us to learn to walk with him in the storm. There's going to be times where there's real perplexity and difficulty and obstacles in our lives. There's going to be things happening in the nation and the nations round about. How are we going to cope with it? We need to continually keep our eyes on Jesus. But the storm comes in and there's all these things hurling around us. We get our eyes on those things and we'll find we'll begin to sink. Now I said something this morning that... I feel is important, but perhaps I don't know if this relates to you at all. Um, But many of us, we can be interested in Bible prophecy. I happen to be one of them. You know, you you, you constantly, you want to know what the scriptures say in relation to the Lord's return and the timing of the rapture. And we know there's the falling away. And we know there's the man of of iniquity. There's lawlessness. There is the Antichrist. There's the number of all these things. But the danger is biblical prophecy can become a hobby. And we just get wrapped up in the whole theme. What is the purpose of biblical prophecy? It's to draw your attention to the person of the Lord Jesus. The book of Revelation is really about the Lord Jesus, isn't it? What does the word of God say? Doesn't it say that the witness, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy if you leave Jesus out the mix in your 
studying of biblical prophecy and it's just that you're interested in it, you've missed the point. The point of biblical prophecy and us coming to understand the days we're living in and the days that are coming up is to enlighten us to get ready for Jesus' return. Because do you remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of, of Luke? He said this, when you see these things begin to happen, focus more on Bible prophecy. He doesn't say that. He said, when you see these things begin to happen, lift up your heads. This book of prophecy is there to ultimately bring me to the point where my head is lifted up to focus on the Lord Jesus and his return. See, everything is focused towards him. Looking unto Jesus. Who are you looking unto this morning? This afternoon? Who are you looking unto? Do not look about you anxiously. Do not fear. Do not get anxious. Keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus. Then, just looking on in verse 2 of chapter 12, as we come towards an end. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, what is interesting is the word our is not in the original Greek, nor does it particularly correspond to any of the words in the translation. So a better translation would be this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. What is the writer saying here? He's basically saying, in chapter 11, you have these great cloud of witnesses I've listed you their names, Jewish believers. I've told you about Barak. I've told you about Abraham. I've told you about Noah. How by faith they did this and this and this and this and this. They're your cloud of witnesses. But now I want to take your attention to somebody who is now your example. And your example, the one who exemplifies the faith is the Lord Jesus himself. He is the author of our faith. The one who begins everything. Isn't it wonderful to know the fact that he is the one who started everything. Before there was the first man of faith, there was Jesus. And Jesus, it shows us in the way he lived on this earth how we are to live by faith. Better than anybody else. He obeyed the Father better than any of these other ones. You see, if you look to these other ones ultimately to be your model, even Abraham, do you notice that through his life he made mistakes, didn't he? These were great men and women of faith, but they did make mistakes. You turn to the Lord Jesus, he didn't make one mistake. Not one. He was perfect. He lived by faith from first to last. And he is your example. Now it is also true that he's the one who produced faith in you. He was the author of you coming through to living faith. There's no doubt about that either. 
And there's no doubt about the fact that he's able to bring you right through to the other end where your faith is ultimately perfected. And when you see the Lord in glory. There's a verse, isn't there, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 that says this, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. He's bringing many sons to glory. He's the perfecter of faith. He's got there already. He's gone through the tape, as it were. He's gone ahead of us, and now he's bringing us to glory. And he knows how to get us there because he's got there himself. And he knows how to bring you through. Do you see that? Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, will bring it through to completion. Now, this is because he's the beginning and the end of everything. And ultimately, God's desire is that all things be summed up in Christ. I, th I was really interested when I listened to Duncan Campbell's account of the Hebrides revival. I remember on one occasion, he mentioned on one of his tapes in his Scottish accent that I just can't copy. But I wish I could because um, I like doing impressions. I'm working on Martin Lloyd-Jones at the moment. He's fantastic. Um, but anyway, Duncan Campbell mentions in this message that there's one particular village or one particular place, Barves, was it, in the Hebrides, where suddenly a whole load of them, even those who weren't in church were coming through to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, independent of anybody else. They were just in the streets on their way and suddenly saw their need to get saved and they'd be born again of the Spirit in the middle of the street. I mean, amazing things were happening in the revival in the Hebrides. Incredible. And he said this. He said, all those that were caught up in that revival at that time, none of them have fallen away from the Lord. And he said, he said simply this as a postscript, but I thought it was so, such a good one. He said, oh dear friends, he said, when God does something, he does it well. He does it well. He's the author and the perfecter of faith. Are you putting your faith this morning? Oh dear, let's try again. If you're putting your faith this afternoon in your faith to get you to heaven, or are you putting your faith in the person of Jesus alone? It says looking unto Jesus. Now, if I was the writer, I would be saying things like this, looking unto the King of Kings. But he doesn't say that. Or I would have put then, looking unto the prince of life. Something like that would be good, wouldn't it? Or what about looking unto the lion of the tribe of Judah? That would be a great, be great, wouldn't it? Looking unto the lamb. But it simply says, looking unto Jesus. You know, Jesus has many titles in the Word of God and there's a reason why different titles of Jesus are used in different narratives in different letters. It's not there arbitrarily. 
There's a reason. So what is the reason here? Looking unto Jesus. Well, what does Jesus' name mean? It means salvation. Simply salvation. This verse is showing you to look unto Jesus as your salvation. Well, let's end. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, or some versions put perfecter, of faith. And yes, he's able to get you through to the other side as well. Do remember that wonderful verse, won't you, from Philippians 1 verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? I hope so. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There's the word endure again. Came up re before in verse 2. Let us run with endurance. For the Lord endured himself. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, there's a sermon in all of that. But let's just end by mentioning this. The Lord's gone through the cross for us, and he can bring us through whatever things that we're going to face. None of us will have to go through what Jesus went through because none of us are qualified to take the wrath of God upon ourselves for our sin. Jesus has done that once and for all. The rock was struck once. It's not to be struck again. And if you're abiding in the Lord Jesus, you're saved from the wrath that is to come because the Lord will not strike his son a second time. And God sees you as in his son. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. I love what Paul says in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How are you going to get to glory? How are you going to run the race? By being smart? By becoming legalistic? No. No. By looking unto Jesus and pinning all your hope on the person himself. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let nobody else take his place so that hour by hour you may know his power until you have run the great race. Athletes do it for a perishable crown. Let's run with endurance. Let's run, however hard, by the grace of God, let's run. When we get to glory, we will never regret it. We will only be enraptured with the joy of being with Jesus. The one we've looked to through the eye of faith all along, we will one day see in person and we'll behold him in a way we haven't up to now. What a day that's going to be. Isn't it worth running? Keep going. 
Look to him, even through these difficult times. Don't let that stop you, keeping your eyes on Jesus. Let him be your all in all. Shall we pray? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the person of your dear son. And we want to say, Father, that he is dear to us. He is precious to us. Help us, Lord, to know him more. Help us to experience his presence more. Help us to abide in fellowship more. Bring us into a deeper love with you, Lord, we pray. Commit our time to you. We pray that everything that has been of you would abide with us. And anything outside of that, we ask, oh God, for your pardon and your falling away of those words from our ears. But what you have emphasized to us, keep with us. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.